Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Uh, hello, Professor James. Thanks so much for joining us in the podcast. Uh, I would like to go first. How you would like to define yourself and introduce also yourself for the audience? Okay. Um, I am a developmental psychologist who also has advanced training in public health, and I study the intersection of, of mental health and well-being and young adults, adolescents and young adults. I also study connectedness and resilience, and I have some research going in sexual violence prevention, um, so all with, with young adults and adolescents. And I'm also a senior advisor for the Jed Foundation in, in um, New York City, which is a foundation that focuses on suicide prevention and mental health promotion for adolescents and young adults. So thanks so much for joining us, Professor. So as you may know, the topic of today is mental health in academia, and I think this topic is very important. I, I, I have a lot of stories, maybe uh, when I speak to different students or even academician fellow, they have so, some sort of pressure in, uh, in their work, and that's lead to mental health issue. But first of all, if you can tell us how you would define mental health, what is maybe the cause of the mental health? That's a good question. And mental health is, um, is a big term that captures a lot. So in general, we think of mental health on a continuum that goes from what we would think of as you know mental illness, something that can be quite severe and um, disruptive to life, all the way to the other end to thriving and flourishing, which is where we are. We have really positive mental health and we feel really great about ourselves and where we are in the world and we aren't struggling. And then there's, you know, it's, it's kind of a continuum. So it can go from seriously problematic to seriously uplifting and anywhere in between. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, that's indeed um, a good point. But maybe I would like to go again for the, the, the main point here and discussion about, I think that's the main struggle sometimes because of mental health, uh, academia, even mm -hmm. for students, as I said, the long work, uh, hours of work, and also the pressure yeah. uh, you have to achieve certain tasks. But uh, most of the questions come, I think that's every single beachy student or maybe academician ask about the lab environment. And... We can see that from the story that um, the BI or maybe the head of the lab sometimes contribute, or maybe the boss even in outside academia, contribute in, uh, in, uh, in developing mental health issue for the employee or individual in the lab. So if you can tell us what could be the symptoms of uh, individual that can exhibit something like psychopathy or, or maybe... Uh, is there something that could be detrimental for work workplace and mental health? So I think there's a number of questions here. The the one that I'll start with is just when when you when you say mental health in this context, we're talking largely about mental health challenges. So these are the things that that are disruptive to life, and and those are common, as you know, sort of and increasingly common around the globe in all sorts of settings. Um, and we, we recognize mental health challenges because they, it, 
basically they interfere with well-being they interfere with being able to function if they're really serious then they can they can interfere with core life relationships or the ability to get work done um, or even to just function at all in the world when they're really severe so on on college campuses um, you know first of all struggling with mental health challenges is something that happens everywhere it's not unique to college campuses by any stretch um, as you know but everybody on a college campus is to some degree or another going to be vulnerable it, it really depends on the mix of experiences that they have and the way that that interacts with their in inherent personal vulnerabilities that they you know either come into the world with or that they acquire through you know having difficult histories like having a history of abuse or trauma but the way you recognize it is because either somebody yourself or somebody else um, stops being able to function very well uh, there's, so there's or or they um, they stop showing up very well they start feeling they start looking lethargic or down or they start making negative comments or having a lot of, you know, just constantly being in a bad mood. The, you know, anything that's, that's different than somebody is or uh, different than somebody has been. So it's a, it's a departure from their normal, their normal self in a negative way or, or feels very acute, like um, a, psycho, a psychotic break obviously would be something that would be very noticeable because someone would literally be responding to things that nobody else can can see or, or feel and they're usually responding in a negative way. So maybe I'm curious to ask you, as you mentioned sometimes, students may be mostly vulnerable to this mental health issue. Do you think it is related again to childhood trauma and how they raised, do you think that's contribute if, or does something maybe comes, uh, I don't, I don't know how you see the cases. Is something maybe someone who has maybe uh, a healthy upbringing can be less vulnerable to mental health issues? Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, so to some degree, you know, we, we studies show that, say, 40 or so percent of depression, for example, is heritable. So it's something that, you know, could have a genetic um, marker or a genetic proclivity, but um, there's a chunk of mental health challenges that it really rests pretty firmly on early childhood experiences because these are so profound for for people. Um, so any any history of trauma or chronic distress, I mean, you can find families that aren't. There's no clear abuse or trauma happening, but there's just a lot of stress, chronic stress in the family, maybe there's a lot of fighting, or maybe there's a lot of moving, or maybe there's, they live in an, in an area where there's a lot of um, threat of some sort, it's violent or chaotic, or um, or they live in an area with, with environmental toxins, um, so there's just a lot of stuff that they're breathing in that, that is really unhealthy. All of those things can put somebody at higher than usual risk for a later mental health challenge. If there's some studies show that maybe, um, I don't know if in female or male different, how they respond to certain situation. Do you think there's nuances in how, uh, if, if, if we speak about individual facing this kind of um, tra trauma in their life and then become an academy, for example, do you think they exhibit the same uh, characteristic or maybe different? 
Oh, there's, yeah, there's definitely a lot of individual characteristics that place someone at higher or lower risk. I mean, if we're talking about, about gender, then females are a little more likely than males to suffer from emotional, um, emotional challenges and emotional related, um, health challenges, but males are much more likely to suffer from, say, um, substance use disorders and to be at higher risk for suicide. So, you know, some of the dynamics at play there are a little complicated and it depends very much on uh, of right like what family what their families were like and then what cultures they were raised in and what the expectations were. But one of the things that consistently shows up is that men are often taught in a lot of cultures to not show feelings so much so they may not they may be repressing um, some of the the kinds of some of the some, they just may be repressing emotion they may be practiced at repressing emotions a little better than females but that can put them at higher risk for really pretty severe mental health challenges down the road so it's kind of a trade-off yeah, that's interesting indeed. But I would like to go stress again about this subject because I think if you can tell us about what does psychopathy mean, because why why we speak about being psychopath? Because uh, that's story in academia. We have hundred or maybe thousands of stories that uh, when you get promoted, I'm not speaking again. Uh, I'm not making a sweeping generalization, but I think uh, in corporate role or even in academy, psychopath person. Uh, they can show the, being charming and intelligent, and deep down they are monster. And uh, if you can tell us the difference between psychopath person and sociopath, because I think why I'm asking this question, it's important for a student. Um, they they don't know how can recognize this pattern in the supervisor, for example, and it's, or even a relationship. We don't know how we can spot this characteristic. So if you can define first what is psychopaths mean and also sociopath person what is different between both of them um so psychopaths are, are distinguished from sociopaths by a nearly complete inability to form like, genuine attachments to other people so they may they may form artificial and shallow relationships um, which they might then exploit or manipulate to benefit themselves um they are, you know, they can appear glib and even charming, and they can sometimes just it look. They can look very normal on the outside, but the, but they really can't do empathy. Like they can't connect to another person in a re, in a meaningful way. Um, sociopaths are a little different. They can develop close attachments to one or even a few people or group, but they generally also have difficulties in forming relationships. Um, and they are often pretty much incapable of anything even remotely resembling a normal work or family life. So they, in, unlike psychopaths, they are often really impulsive and erratic and more prone to rage or violent outbursts. So, you know, you probably aren't, we're not going to find too many sociopaths in the workplace, that not, not without seeing it for a while. Psychopaths are a little bit harder to detect, but marked by just really deep inability to kind of um, connect to another person. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And I'm curious to ask, is this, is this something like mental health, like recognize it, a mental health? Uh, because we see a lot of psychopaths striving in, in, in this world. So um, is this something like legal, this is like a legal mental health issue or? 
well, I, I don't know about legal. I mean, we do, it is, both of these are, are diagnosable. Um, and we know that psychopath, psychopathic personalities are, are, um, genetic for the most part. A lot of them just kind of come in that way. Uh, sociopath, sociopathic personalities are, um, often a result of physical or emotional abuse or severe trauma experienced during childhood. Um, so, and they both can look a, a little bit like narcissistic personality disorder, largely because they're both really focused on, on themselves. Mm -hmm, great. And I'm curious if we can also define what is the difference, how we can spot the covert and overt narcissism in personality. What is something you think very important to recognize? And the personalities. Yeah, um, narcissism, you know, is just a. <laughs> uh, well, we have one. <laughs> We've had a narcissistic president. <laughs> um, it's usually diagnosed through clinical evaluation. It can be a little bit tricky to spot unless you know somebody well, because sometimes people who it's not uncommon for people who are narcissistic to be very charming, and but the difference is they um, are often. They, they operate out of a pretty much exclusive concern for themselves and, and uh, for, their, for what's in their interest. So, um, you know, if you, if you look at what motivates them, it's almost always what they're going to get out of it. They're almost, they're very transactional, meaning they, they see only the exchange, uh, you know, you give me this, I, I get this, you get that. There's never, there, you know, there's just not one to talk about caring uh, for people. They're, they're not going to, they're often not people who are going to have um, close attachments, or if they do, it's going to be heavily transactional. They often see themselves as exceptional. They often see themselves, you know, they'll talk about themselves in terms of what they can achieve or how, how grand they are, how they can make everything happen. Um, yeah. And then there's a, there's a ray, there's a range obviously of, you know, sort of lesser or more severe narcissistic personality types, but in general, that's the way you would recognize them. Yeah. And, and do you think they are aware of this personality? I mean, the person who is not maybe narcissistic or psychopath are aware of what they have or they and denial about that? Well, it's a tricky one. I mean, um, for narcissists, they often are, sh their very psyche will shield them from being, getting close to the, the idea that they're seriously flawed, <laughs> you know, that they need desperately to feel, um, important and, um, at the, at the center. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about narcissism is that it often rests on this, uh, bedrock. If they get very, you know, if they can get very honest, they it rests on a bedrock of low self worth. You know, often narcissists are driven by a deep sense of shame and uh, an unworthiness of low self esteem, but they just can't tolerate that. They can't tolerate it, so they create an entire persona and fantasy life that has them as is exactly the opposite. So the threat to their sense of self is so great sometimes that they often really just can't. Um, see themselves that way. It takes it, they can if they're with help, but it's just rare that they would that they would really acknowledge that themselves. Now, do they ever lay in bed at night or sit somewhere and have these nurse these small fears that they're that there's that, that not fears but probably knowing that they're hiding from themselves? I would imagine some of them do, but 
it's not what um, they're going to share. That's interesting also. And maybe every single student asks us a question about imposter syndrome and low self-esteem. Why do you think that something comes to every single student that maybe not everyone, but I sometimes have this kind of thought that I'm not good enough. I have this kind of thought mm. that I don't really know. It was all you know, but why is this kind of imposter syndrome or also low self-esteem happening? Why? Um, you know, that's that's an, a slightly easier one in the sense that we all carry around schemas, which are just, you know, ideas in our mind about who we are, who other people are, what certain guilds, you know, certain groups are. And especially in college campuses, we have all, I think all over the world, we associate college and uh, university life as the place where, you know, smart people go. And and it's very easy to look at other people and project onto them um, a, a sort of uniform idea of intelligence that 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 we won't really we we see ourselves as a more full bodied person like we see all of our flaws and the way the times in which we've done things and we're like that's not very smart but we don't see that in another person or we don't allow ourselves to to believe that everybody walking around on this campus has that too so there is a it's just a it's an error in self comparison basically and it's born of the fact that i have a lot of information about me and i have very little information about you and what i what i'm going to project onto you is this intelligence and capacity that i may not see in myself because you're you're there you know you're at this place where we know smart people reside So it can be it can definitely be overcome when students especially, you know, start to understand that their peers are not perfect and everybody makes mistakes and they're surrounded even the the faculty in their lives, if, you know, are 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 humans. It helps a lot if the faculty and staff and other other people in the college environment acknowledge imperfection. <laughs> it it doesn't help when everybody's invested in making themselves look as perfect as possible. That just amps up the comparison for everyone. I'm so glad that you mentioned this point. I think this point is very brilliant, what you said. And that's led me to the question, do you think as we are human beings, we lack of understanding ourselves? We don't know fully understand who we are and we lack of self-love? Because I think that subject, I think, is also centered around everything we do in our life, even research, relationship. Do you think that's something we're missing and why? Because it's hard sometimes, what? I can love myself. That's crazy. But no, we have to love ourselves. And that's something is not easy. But do you think that why human beings lack uh, to answer the question, who I am? That's a really good question, and it's a tough one to answer because I don't think there's any one answer. I mean, to one, to some degree, this larger question of who we are as humans is not one that any, you know, it's not one that science can answer um, at all. It, it's one that different religions and spiritual traditions can talk, speak to, and do speak to. Um, but on some deep level, each human has to have their own personal experience of this larger, you know, of, of the self that's not really just 
an idea or a role. It's, you know, it's the me that's not just a mom or a partner or an academic or, or a friend. It's, it's these larger questions of who am I and why am I here? Um, and we don't, at least, at least where I am here in the United States, we do a terrible job of, of even inviting young people or any people to, to explore that and get to the inevitable. I mean, the, the thing that if, that you find, as you just said, if you sort of go down that, that rabbit hole a little bit and you start to really ask those questions and you start to really wonder what, what, what drives you is the sense of connection and love and, and hmm, interconnectedness with, with everything that is important to you. And that, that becomes first, you know, so some people can get there and they can hold that and it can feel, it can fuel them and it can keep them steady and stable, even when the outside world um, in their own life feels nuts. And, but people who haven't really done that, who don't have a, a, a connection like that can really get lost in a, in the world of ideas about who they're supposed to be because they, they don't have a sense of soul connection to what they are. Um, but, you know, right now, the, as far as I can tell in, in the state of the world and sort of in terms of species evolution, that's, it, it takes a lot of inner fortitude and a good bit of support in a lot of ways to, to, to make that journey. So I hope that as the years go by, it'll get easier for all of us and we'll recognize how important it is. <laughs> We also, and I, I think I'm glad you mentioned this point because when we are in the world of ideas and it, that's part of, I think, of work about the role of social media. And we know that social media contribute in mental health. Let's be honest, you scroll and you see, and we see some people say that I, I uh, just you, you compare yourself to other what they achieved in life or maybe in academic status as well. But how social media, we have, you, you are afraid to miss out. You're afraid to see what other peers did in the research line. They publish a paper and they share it on social media. So there's a new yeah. trend now that you, everyone bragging about. I know it's, it's of course, it had a, a good point, but still, at the end of the day, it contributes to some mental health issue. It's comparing and and now we share a publication online and... And you get a lot, how, how amount of likes you get and share and retweets. How do you see that affecting really mental health, uh, social media? Yeah, that's a good question and a really big question. Um, you know, social media has brought uh, joys and sorrows to all of our lives. Uh, on the one hand, gosh, I don't even know how we would be living through COVID, for example, if we didn't have all this technology and if people couldn't reach out to other people, it would be a much more difficult experience, I expect, to be isolated, alone, um, and not able to interact with other people this way. Social media really has made it possible for us to, to, to make it through this time, and I, I really want to honor that. Um, it has also been definitely a source of mental health strain and it through exactly the vehicle that you just talked about which is social comparison i mean there's there's something um you know deeply difficult about uh, having so many different people and it's not even real people it's just the idea like it's what people put on a page that that 
is always their best foot forward, right? And so again, it goes back to that imposter syndrome. We have these schemas. Well, now it's not just an idea I have about someone else in my head. They're, they're actually, there's evidence. I can find it. All the different papers they published or the pictures of their lovely family or their vacation or their new things or whatever it is. So it requires much more inner um, fortitude, um, you know, we were just talking about that sense of self. It requires a lot more of that um, sense, sense of I know why I'm here and what I'm here and what I'm here doing. And it's not, it's, you know, that person's doing their journey. I'm doing my journey. They're not comparable and they're both beautiful. It, it just asks more of humans than we have really evolved well to live in. So on the one hand, I think, well, you know, it makes sense, right, um, that we would that we would um, suffer in that particular way. It also is potentially an opportunity for us to have exactly the kinds of conversations you and I are having right now. I mean, and, and that could lead us as a, as a species actually to be more resilient um, in, in the long run. Um, it will also lead us to more self-discipline because that's the other thing that has to be exercised here. I, I mean, like you, I, I know that I can't, do that like I can't I don't even go to I have a Facebook page but I don't I don't hardly ever go there um and I don't really do social media partly just because it's a time sink and I don't want to spend my time that way and I already spend a lot of time on a on a computer as it is for work but also because I know I don't want to have those feelings um but I'm you know I'm in my I'm a full-grown adult not a teenager trying to figure out who I'm going to be in the world and <laughs> who's going to like me. So I think it's a little more difficult when you're young to regulate use, which is why families end up being kind of important. And then the industry, the social media industry, the makers are going, I know they're starting to ask and answer some hard questions about how to develop platforms that discourage social comparison because it's so clear that although it's cool, it's also just overwhelming for human vulnerability exactly and i'm glad that's very much as a spine because i think one of the things that as we are human we are a socialist piece of so we still have this kind of prejudice if you have a certain idea and you want to have a consensus about this idea everyone agree with this idea and if you have a different opinion sometimes you feel so something wrong with you and it makes doubts in you that you don't agree even with ideas, even in academy or in the world even. So how do you see this kind of, if someone has different opinion and you don't have to follow the trend or the norm? It's sometimes a challenge if we speak here yeah. about underrepresented uh, communities, for example, or maybe in, in academy or outside. It's a yeah. challenging that you don't find maybe uh, someone believing what you think about it. And it makes sometimes like... They try to gaslighting gas you, even in, in, in ideas. Yeah. If you have an idea and you, I'm, I'm trying, and I, I see a potential in you, but maybe you are threatening me for a certain idea or ideology you have in you as a group. So you start to gaslighting certain individual. Uh, and that's make a doubt in the human being. How do you see this yeah. kind of, uh, it could develop mental health, or do you think this techniques to, or because of tactics, how you can brainwashing a mind? with a certain idea or gaslight mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, so 
Oh, it's never been easier to gaslight. It's never felt more competitive than now, partly because of what we were just talking about, just how visible everybody, seemingly everybody else's ideas are. Um, and it's very, it's much easier to feel like one needs to succumb to herd mentality, partly because it does feel like there's this critical mass. Um, that said, there are techniques, and in some ways I, you know, it goes back to what I was just saying in terms of us as a species evolving, um, because I think we are being, because this is so easy, because it happens so often, because so many of us come face-to-face with this pressure to fit in, um, even as we we know that, you know, we, we don't, that's, we don't feel like we really belong and we don't even know if we want to really belong. We actually have other ideas we'd like to, to explore. Um, it, it's an opportunity for us to practice what the Buddhists talk about as, as detachment, you know, um, there's just, and in a way it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about a sense of self. I mean, I, I think we're asked to be more courageous than we've ever been asked to be right and in the end uh the diversity of us the the diversity not just of us as as people but as um uh for all the different ideas that we have are going to be are so much more powerful and so much more beautiful and so much more likely to to keep us alive as a species than converging on one idea. Uh, and that goes whether we're talking globally or in a country or in a university or in a lab. Like diversity of idea is what has always made humans p- powerful. It's why we've spread across the earth and created as much as we have so there but there's there's courage in that and um you know we don't we can't we have to have more of it now partly because it feels like there's so much more pressure to to be like other people um yeah that's really wonderful and maybe the most recent question about mini academician and i told you stories about covert situation they feel um, maybe mentally unstable because of the situation they can't work from home and they develop certain issue like uh, procrastination and that's issue like that. So how, how do you see that we can keep our mind or mental health or sanity intact during this time? What are techniques do you think that uh, you think right. about? Uh, you, you, you still yeah. in the line, of course, we, if someone is suffering from certain uh, symptoms, should seek mental health uh, like therapist or psychologist. So. But now if we speak, someone is on the verge of being like mentally unstable. What could be the techniques to protect yourself? Yeah, so, you know, right. If somebody's really past the point where they feel like they can, they can affect the way that they do life every day, then they really should seek mental health support. And there are, the nice thing about having um, the internet, that, as we were talking about, is the availability of telehealth. And I don't know about in Belgium where you are, but I know here in the States, there have been a proliferation of therapists and mental health resources so that, so that people can get connected. But, you know, that's not... Um, there's still every other day to live. There's every other hour of the day to live other than the times that you're meeting with your therapist. So having having a schedule, first of all, I think our, our sites, our, uh, our goals need to be realistic. I don't think there are very few people during this time anywhere in the world, if they're being impacted by COVID, who are going going to be doing well. I mean, it's a very small number. There are probably some, but but most of us 
are going to be experiencing more stress than usual and it's more chronic than it has been. It's gone on for a much longer period of time. So lower expectations is number one. Don't expect the same level of productivity. Don't expect the same level of feeling happy or content. Don't expect to be able to do any most of the things that you might have other, otherwise done, even exercise and things. So reduce, reduce your expectations. Focus on the things that are that you know are really authentically healthy for you. So schedules, you know, getting up about the same time, going to bed about the same time, um, metering your work. If you find that you really need a break during the day to take a nap or just to read a book, to go, you know, to, to go away um, for a little while, ideally not on a screen. I think we're doing, we're, most of us are spending a lot of time on screens. Uh, if you're home, you do that kind of work then getting away from a screen for a little while you know, just know know yourself well enough to know what it is that charges that deeper battery not um try to avoid taking easy to take distraction breaks you know like zoning out on scrolling through social media really bad way to take a break i would not recommend that i would limit social media um intake during this time for the reasons that we've talked about um um, you, you go going through social media, watching too a lot of TV or anything like that. I would just try to limit that. Make sure we eat as healthfully as possible, um, you know. But don't have expect crazy expectations. I know that lots of people are gaining a little extra weight. You know, you know, it's okay. Like <laughs> that's it's okay. Don't be too hard on yourself. Get outside when you can. So basic, basically regularity, doing, building in a little more of the things that we know, each of us know, works for us. And, and that requires having some degree of self-understanding. So this is a great time if somebody's never really paid attention to the things that made them feel, that make them feel authentically better versus not. This is a really good time to pay attention and then to kind of juice or do more of those things that we know help us and to kind of limit the things that are, that take that away. And then the last thing I'd say is, um, this will end, you know, I don't know what's going to come after this. This is a crazy time, but, but we know this pandemic will end. And, and so it isn't like we're looking at the rest of our lives. This is, it's, uh, it's a slog as they say in English. It's, we're going to have to, it's just going to, we're in it and it, but we're not, uh, we probably won't even be locked up like this for another six months. Like, you know, the vaccines are starting to come. Um, it will happen. It, it is just, it, it's a time that I, I both, I have to admit, I have a love hate relationship with this time that the difficult aspects of this time are the reasons, you know, you'd know, but I also see that it's growing us, um, in potentially important ways. You can't know that you're resilient. We don't, resilience isn't an idea. It's an experience. So you don't know that you're resilient until you have something to be in, to be resilient in the face of, or in response to. And one of the most interesting things about human challenge, struggle, and resilience is that we are all way more resilient than we think we are. So this is giving us each an opportunity to experience our resilience and experience the places that we could use a little more muscle and to develop some of that muscle. Um, so, so there's a lot of potential silver linings to this time. Uh, 
if we take them, but it requires discipline and focus. And so that's what I would, I would say just, this isn't a time for playing. It's not a time for ignoring yourself. It's a time for knowing yourself and then using the practices, you know, and then things like meditation, yoga, anything that helps you like authentically turn the stress in your body into something more productive are is definitely going to be used. I can't agree more. I think you see the beautiful point. And I think meditation, especially I think it's area really in my experience. It makes me release the, it can, it really all tension in your body and the muscles. It's really, really, yeah. yeah. And I think that's also cure for many students have OCD and BTSD, all this kind of disease. I think maybe meditation could be a first approach uh, to help for healing. Yeah. Yeah, meditation is wonderful. And there are just more and more meditation resources available to everybody. I mean, there's just some wonderful guided meditations that people can get through podcasts or through YouTube or other sources um, so that they do. Because meditation doesn't have to be just sort of sitting in silence. If, if people have got busy minds, there are other ways to do it, like guided meditation or mantra meditation. But it is a really well-documented, evidence-based practice that is effective so, and costs nothing, just quiet. <laughs> so we are closing in on a few questions. I think one of the questions okay. we ask in the podcast, always to each guest, do you think ego is important for the researcher? And what's interesting that each guest has different uh, responses for the ego. And when I'm looked to Eckhart Tolle, I think he said there's two types of ego. And they think the victim mind is like an ego victim and superior uh, perspective. How do you see ego? Do you think ego is sort of mental health? <laughs> ego is an interesting one. Yes, um, people, of course, need egos to be able to perform in the world. We need to know, we need to feel good about ourselves. And, and that's part of what goes into an ego. Um, but, um, I, you know, you, you mentioned a victim ego. I think that's interesting because I would say that one of the challenges certainly we here in the United States face, and I'm certain it's not just here, is that uh, the feeling like a victim is one of our favorite states of consciousness here as a group. And it's really hard to create out of victim consciousness. Um, but it's really easy to fall into feeling like the world, you know, that, that I don't have control in the world and I should have control. And if I don't have control and it's not going the way that I think it should go, then there's something wrong and I'm being victimized by X, Y, and Z group. That's just not true. That's a story that the ego tells to protect itself. And I understand that, but the reality is that doesn't do anything but cause damage. In reality, there, nobody's you know nobody's fully in control and that's I think probably the deepest lesson that any of us can get is that um you know we're we're having an experience here we're not here to control everything we we can't um the best thing to do is to to be grateful for the things that we, the, the, grateful for the opportunities to experience our own mastery and to, and to, to serve others uh, that we have. And when things are not going our way, to let go and be okay with it. Um, that's, that's a pretty high teaching and it's a high state of consciousness to be able to accept the things that come and then to, to be able to accept the places where the world just seems to say no. 
um, rather than make it wrong, make it bad or wrong. And, you know, like you said, on, on university campuses, that's a tough one, right? Because we're all into controlling as much as we can, <laughs> um, both at the level of our science and sort of our own personal experiences. That's very interesting, yeah. And uh, I know the subject, we have a lot of dimension we can go for, but maybe a lot of podcasts in the future, we can do that. But yeah, it's very interesting. Um, and may I ask you what your inspiration in your research in psychology and mental health? What is your inspiration as a researcher? Um, you know, I, what, what I aspire to is kind of what we're talking about. I mean, I'd really like to be part of, I'd really like to be part of an evolution of our species, honestly. I'd like to be here to help others and, and myself understand how, how to how to get a little closer to that first question you asked, which is how, or one of the first questions about, you know, how do we know what, what, what we really are? How do we know what reality really, really is? How do we, how do we live, how do we live together um, cooperatively? How do we co-create? How do we, how do we be comfortable enough with not needing to be the leader all the time, not needing to stand out as an individual um, that we can, understand what it feels like to work together with others to save our planet and to create environments where people can grow and thrive. Uh, that's the direction that I go as a person, and it's a direction that I go in my research. And I, I'm really especially interested in how people can have hard experiences like we're having right now and come out better people, like come out wiser, come out kinder, come out more more um, willing and interested in in helping other people because honestly I mean I think the thing I've grappled with the most as an academic and as a person is um at some point I you know I looked at my CV I'm like I got a lot of papers but but to what why do I care at what point does it what am I doing right if 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 what I'm doing isn't serving the larger good then it's I'm, it's meaningless, partly because I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die, and, and all, all that's going to be left of me is a name. And do I, am, I, am I living a life that feels worth living? And am I giving the ways that I know I, I can give, and am I experiencing new things? So what I want for myself is what I want to, what I want for everybody. You know, that's, I, I wanted to, to clap for you for this part because you, you say that what we need in every human being to say, I, I really have a huge respect for what you say. And that's maybe, uh, that's what we need to know as a human being. Why you are here and you're going to die and, and you have to do for the God. And, and I, I hope we can get this message in our life. But thanks a lot. This is really great words and wise words. Thanks a lot. Yes. And lastly, what was the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and was the life changing and you could share it with us? Oh, oh my gosh, that is such a big question. Okay, I'm sure I've, I'd have to think about the very best, but I'll tell you about the one that comes into my mind. Um, there was a time when I was going through a really hard time in my life, and I heard a, a, a wise person that I respect very much say, courage isn't the absence of fear, it's the belief in something greater than fear. And that really, really got me at the time because I was really grappling with being afraid and I wanted to just retreat and go find a safe place to be. Uh, and 
her words really affected me because she, you know, I learned she, it really, she's right. It's not the belief in something. It's not believe. It's not the belief in the absence of fear. It's the belief in something greater than fear. So when we, when we're willing to, to take risks, to explore new things, to have new experiences, um, even when they're scary, I think that's when we, that's when we evolve and grow really powerful and very interesting for a life message. Yeah, thanks mm-hmm. a lot, Janice. I, I, I wish we can have a, another discussion because I want to learn from you more and that's very interesting. Thanks a lot. It was very enjoyable to talk to you and very informative. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Marwa. It was wonderful.